Kathleen Folbig had killed three of her children and was pregnant with her fourth when she wrote in her diary about the day her memories would come to the surface. That will be the day to lock me up and throw away the key, she wrote, something I'm sure will happen one day. She's been spared a life sentence, but will spend at least 30 years behind bars for the manslaughter of her first baby, Caleb, and the murders of those who followed, Patrick, Sarah and Laura. Her ex-husband, Craig, left court without comment. Just wants his life, he wants to get back on and get on with his future. My family's broken, my family's destroyed. The judge said Folbig's disturbed childhood provided an insight into her behaviour. When she was just 18 months old, her father killed her mother and it was also possible Kathleen had been sexually abused. Hi guys, thanks for joining us this week on the True Crime Sisters podcast. This is our first episode of the Christmas season, so it's a perfect time to talk about our plans for this busy time of year. So we're going to put out this episode, and then we're going to put one more out before Christmas as well, and then we'll come back mid-January. We have our December Patreon episode being released um, tomorrow. So that one's going to be about Madeline McCann. So if you're interested in that case, be sure to head over to our Patreon page. Um, The case has been featured on a lot of podcasts in the past, but I do think that we come at it from a slightly different angle, so it might be worth checking out if you're interested in that case like I am. We have a few new Patreons to thank this week for joining, so thank you to Tom, Jade, Sri, Rachel, Vanessa, Angelique, Hayley, Taryn, Raylene, Bridget, Georgia, and Casey. So thank you very much, guys, for your support. It really means the world to us. And with that, I'll pass you over to Bill. So this week, we were lucky enough to attend a media briefing at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which was amazing. We did want to say a big thanks to Jen and Deb for inviting us. We'll speak a bit more about that in an upcoming Q&A episode that we're working on. But basically... But basically, we got to hear from a range of different people who work at the Institute, including one of the coroners, a toxicologist, and a forensic pathologist, just to name a few. It really gave us a good insight into the process involved following an unexplained death, including homicides. So we will talk more about that in an upcoming episode. Today, we are covering a case, which was a request from Taryn. And it's the case of Kathleen Folbig. Insight Podcast has also done a really good episode about this case, but we thought in light of the recent developments in the Sophina Nikat case, we would look into both her case and Kathleen's since both are cases of infanticide. Kathleen was born in 1967 in inner Sydney into a very dysfunctional family to say the least. Kathleen's mother was named Kathleen Donovan, so yes, they were both called Kathleen, which is obviously a bit confusing, so we're going to be referring to the mother as Kathy. Kathy had actually been previously married before she met Kathleen's father, but had walked out on her former husband and two children to take up a life of drinking and gambling. She met Kathleen's father, Thomas John Britton, a career criminal, and the two entered a relationship. Britton was known to not be a very nice man. He was a heavy drinker and was known to have a vicious, violent streak, especially when it came to women. Britton lost many jobs through being violent towards his bosses and co-workers, 
At one stage, he hit a co-worker in the face with a three-kilo hammer. He was also a known hitman and debt collector for infamous underworld figures. He had been married before he met Kathy Donovan, but that ended when he slashed his wife in the throat with a knife. She survived, and he was jailed for eight months for inflicting grievous bodily harm. That's when he met Kathy. Their relationship lasted three years, and baby Kathleen was the result. It wasn't long before history repeated itself, and Kathy walked out on Britain and Kathleen. Britain tracked Kathy down to where she was staying with friends. According to him, he begged and pleaded for her to come back home and rejoin himself and baby Kathleen, but she refused. His anger started to bubble over and he hit her in the mouth. On the night of the 8th of December 1968, Britain drank approximately 14 to 16 beers and went back down to the house where Kathy was staying with friends. When she arrived home at the address, Britain approached her and again begged her to come home. He reportedly said, You're a black slut for leaving an 18-month-old baby. I'll stick a knife in your ribs. Following this, he stabbed Kathy 24 times with a 25-centimetre carving knife. She died right there on the street. A neighbour approached after hearing the commotion and saw Britton with a knife in his hand, bend down and try to kiss her. He said, I'm sorry, I had to do it. Britton was arrested and tried for Kathy's murder. He spent 14 years in prison before being deported back to Wales, where he didn't tell any of his family about what he had done or his daughter, Kathleen. Kathleen initially went to live with her mother's brother, but it wasn't long before he surrendered her to the state for being virtually uncontrollable, in his words. When Kathleen was taken in by the Department of Child Welfare at two years and 11 months old, it was thought that she had most likely been the victim of sexual abuse by her father. She was preoccupied with her genitals, which can be a sign of abuse. This preoccupation was excessive. She was prone to extreme temper tantrums and could be very aggressive towards other children. It was obvious that she was a very troubled girl. She was housed in the Bajira Children's Home for some time and her behaviour continued to deteriorate. She was withdrawn and miserable, barely wanting to interact with others and hardly talked or smiled. At age three, her luck turned around. She was adopted by Neville and Deirdre Mulbrough, who were a loving and upright couple. She joined the family at their home in Katara in Newcastle. The family adored her and she was finally able to experience the, st- the support and stability that all children need. Her foster mother has since stated that Kathleen was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. She had two older foster sisters who absolutely adored the beautiful blonde curly-haired Kathleen. The rest of her childhood was untroubled and she was an average student doing well enough. She was also able to make friends and played softball. It sounds blissfully uneventful compared to her first few years. At 15 years of age, Kathleen left school to work as a customer service operator at a petrol station. People who knew her around this time have described her as kind and polite. At 17 years of age, Kathleen decided that she wanted to know more about who her biological family was. And when she found out, she was shocked and disturbed, as you can imagine. Kathleen met Craig Folbig when she was working as a waitress at an Indian restaurant. He was a steel worker 
and was instantly attracted to the beautiful young woman. Craig was five years Kathleen's senior. The attraction was mutual and the two began dating. Craig was a kind, hard-working young man and he was able to provide for Kathleen with the emotional support she craved and needed. Not long after the two began dating, Craig was in an industrial accident at his company and was forced to change careers, becoming a car valuer and salesman instead. On the 9th of September, 1987, the couple got married. Kathleen was 20 and Craig was 25. On the 1st of February, 1989, the couple welcomed their first child, a little boy named Caleb Gibson Folbig. Craig recalled being ecstatic when baby Caleb was born. Caleb was a beautiful, healthy baby, but for one small condition he had, which is commonly known as a floppy larynx. This condition generally resolves itself within 12 months of a baby's birth, and it's rarely serious, with only 10% of diagnosed babies needing further treatment. It did mean that Caleb was a noisy breather, but it didn't seem to affect his feeding, and like most babies, he fed every three to four hours. Like most mothers of newborns, Kathleen wasn't getting a lot of sleep, and when she did sleep, she slept lightly while Craig slept deeply. Kathleen began to get frustrated because she couldn't go out with her friends and couldn't socialise as much as she used to, and she also couldn't work out to maintain her figure. She was becoming more and more stressed with every day that passed and struggled to meet Caleb's needs and demands. On the 20th of February, 1989, when Caleb was 19 days old, Kathleen reportedly got up to check on Caleb. According to her, she put her hand on his chest and it was no longer rising and falling. He wasn't breathing. She screamed out for Craig and they called an ambulance, which arrived promptly to transport baby Caleb to hospital. When paramedics arrived on scene, little Caleb was pronounced dead. He was found on his back and he was still warm. The death was labelled as a SIDS death. There was no identifiable cause. SIDS stands for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which basically just means there is no explanation for the death. SIDS deaths are most common in babies between four and six months old and happen in about one in every thousand live births. It is still unknown why SIDS occurs to this day. However, there were some slight eyebrows raised about Caleb's death because he was well below the average age that babies pass away from SIDS. And it was also uncommon for a SIDS victim to be found so quickly after death. Sudden infant death syndrome is rare, but it's still the number one reason for death in newborns. Some new research suggests that some babies may have a problem with the part of their brain that controls breathing and waking up, and they may not respond by waking up when their breathing becomes slightly restricted. After baby Caleb died, Kathleen and Craig were showered with sympathy. Craig was openly devastated by the passing of his son, whereas some people did note that Kathleen seemed to be able to move on quickly. Obviously, people grieved differently, so at this point, people weren't reading into it too deeply. She was back out partying and socialising not long after Caleb's death. Although it wasn't known until much later, Kathleen made an entry in her diary. Caleb is finally asleep. Sometime after Caleb's death, Kathleen decided she was ready to have another baby and convinced Craig to give parenthood another go. They welcomed their second baby boy, Patrick Folbig, on the 3rd of June 1990. Kathleen made another diary entry. This was the day that Patrick Allen David Folbig was born. 
I had mixed feelings this day, whether or not I was going to cope as a mother or whether I was going to get stressed out like last time. I often regret Caleb and Patrick only because your life changes so much. And maybe I'm the only person that likes change, but we will see. Um, and I think we can't judge too much into what Kathleen's saying at this point, because I think it's very common for a mother to have that postnatal depression and to initially maybe have some, I don't know if regrets or right word, but have some feelings about missing her old life and possibly having some negative feelings towards the baby. I think regardless of anything else, it's fairly obvious that Kathleen is experiencing some postnatal depression. Um, postnatal depression is very common and affects approximately one in seven new mothers. It's generally the result of fluctuating and changing hormones coupled with the extreme demands of motherhood. I just thought it was worth pointing out that some of Kathleen's feelings could probably be attributed to postnatal depression. As time went on, Craig noticed that Kathleen was becoming more and more frustrated by baby Patrick and the demands of motherhood. He stated, she just had this way, like a growl. On the 18th of October, 1990, when Patrick was only four months old, Kathleen said that she woke up for an unknown reason and went to baby Patrick's room. According to her, she found him struggling to breathe and immediately screamed and called triple zero. Something extremely alarming was that in the seven minutes that it took for the ambulance to get to the house, Kathleen made three phone calls, but made no attempt to assist Patrick. This didn't go unnoticed, but it wasn't enough to raise the alarms. It was thought that Kathleen could have revived him if she'd tried. An ambulance officer who attended the scene, David Hopkins, reported that he noticed the soft tissue on the skin of Patrick's neck had been pulled inwards as Patrick had gasped for air. While Patrick was eventually revived, the incident had resulted in Patrick becoming epileptic and blind. This acute and life-threatening event meant that Patrick would need to take barbiturates to control his epilepsy. He was eventually sent home from the hospital with his parents in the hopes that he would still live a happy life. Craig took some time off work to help Kathleen care for their now disabled son. Kathleen was struggling to cope with the high demands of her son. On the 10th of February, 1991, Craig had to return to work to keep bringing in money for the family. Three days after he returned to work, Kathleen called him and began screaming, it's happened again. When the ambulance arrived, little Patrick was dead. His death was attributed to a blockage of the throat from an epileptic attack. Following laying their son to rest, the couple decided it would be best to move, and they decided to shift their lives to Thornton near Maitland. On the 14th of October, 1992, the couple welcomed a third child, this time a girl they named Sarah. They decided that this time they weren't going to take any risks of their child dying of SIDS. They used a sleep apnea machine to alert them if their daughter stopped breathing. At first, things were okay, but after some time, Craig noticed that Kathleen's bad mood and shortness towards the baby were starting to return. She kept complaining to Craig about the sleep apnea machine giving false alerts about Sarah not breathing and waking both her and Kathleen up unnecessarily. Reportedly, she said to Craig, bloody thing, throw it out the window. Do we have to use it? She also nicknamed her daughter the catnapper because she slept in short bursts of 15 to 20 minutes at a time. Kathleen's patience was wearing more and more thin. 
until the 29th of August 1993, when she was practically throwing baby Sarah at Craig to get a break. That night, Kathleen reportedly got up in the night to go to the loo and check on Sarah. Craig was woken by a blood-curdling scream. He immediately leapt out of bed and ran to the cot. Sarah was lying awkwardly. Where she usually slept with her arms and legs splayed out, she was now laying with them pinned straight by her side. She was still warm when the ambulance officers arrived, and sadly she was pronounced dead not long after arriving at the hospital. The next day, Kathleen made an entry in her diary. Sarah left us at 1am. It was 1.20 when Kathleen screamed and woke up Craig. He remembered because he had looked at the clock. So obviously the implication there is that how did she know that she'd died at that specific time? When forensic pathologist John Hilton examined Sarah, he noticed two small abrasions under her skin, but there was nothing suspicious enough to warrant further investigations. Sarah's death was ruled SIDS, just like her brother's. Because the Folbigs had moved around and changed medical practitioners between babies, there was no suspicions raised about the multiple SIDS deaths within the one family. This was obviously before medical records were kept on computer systems. If this had been noticed, it would have warranted further investigation. The probability of three babies dying of SIDS in one family is extremely low. There are some specialists that have since weighed in on the deaths of the Folbig babies. Forensic psychiatrist Dr Yvonne Skinner said that women probably kill their babies more often than we know. She stated, It's quite easy to kill a young child without leaving much evidence of an assault. British pathologist Sir Roy Meadow suggests that multiple deaths from SIDS within one family should be examined with suspicion. He states that one SIDS death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder. And sadly, Sarah would not be the last baby to enter and leave the Folbig family. After Sarah died, the Folbigs picked up and moved again, this time to Singleton in the Hunter Valley. Craig stated emphatically that he didn't think they should have any more babies. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough for the couple to take the necessary precautions and by April 1997, Kathleen was pregnant again. On the 28th of April 1997, Kathleen made an entry in her diary. I think this baby deserves everything I can give her, considering I really gave nothing to the others. I think my feelings towards this one are already deeper. Shame, but that's the way it is. I think it's because I'm 30 now and time to settle and bring up a child. Obviously, I wasn't ready at all before. Her mood remained dark as she wrote again on the 6th of June, 1997. Hopefully preparing myself will mean the end of my dark moods, or at least my ability to see it coming, and say to him or someone, hey, help, I'm getting overwhelmed here, help me out. That will be the key to this baby's survival. It surely will. But enough dwelling. Things are different this time. It will work out for sure. On the 11th of June, she wrote, Heaven help the day that I recall. That will be the, d- that will be the day where they lock me up and throw away the key. Something I'm sure will happen one day. She wrote that she would try to do it right. On the 7th of August, 1997, the fourth baby and second daughter to the Folbigs was born. They named her Laura. It wasn't long before Kathleen was stressed again and the broken sleep left her irritated and angry. Her diary entries continued. I think I can handle her fits of crying better than I did with Sarah. I've learnt to 
walk away and breathe in for a while. With Sarah, all I wanted to do was shut her up. And one day she did. And then on the 20th of September, she wrote, sleep, who needs it? I'm getting a little bit irritable now. This is my punishment for the others. To be continually woken up because this time we know that we have a child with a sleep disorder. How dare he complain to me about lack of sleep? What the fuck would he know? Thinks he'll, thinks he'll have to sleep in the other room. Just so he's not disturbed. Selfish prick. Well, now I know where I stand. Craig is refusing to help and hasn't even attempted in any way. Just wants me to bear all the stress so he can keep selling cars and making money. I suppose the stress of having to provide for us is real, but it's nothing compared to this. Kathleen justified why Laura would live longer than Sarah. She wrote about how Laura was cuddly, beautiful and feminine and how Sarah had looked like a boy. She wrote how she couldn't have handled another one like Sarah, stating about Laura, she saved her life by being different. Her marriage was slowly falling apart. Craig was on edge all the time and terrified that something was going to happen to Laura. Despite Kathleen trying very hard to keep her anger under control, on the 8th of December, she wrote about how she was losing it. Got to stop placing so much importance on myself. Must try to release my stress somehow. I'm starting to take it out on her. Bad move. Bad things and bad thoughts happen when that happens. It will never happen again. She's a fairly good-natured baby, thank goodness. It will save her from the fate of her siblings. I think she has been warned. Kathleen grew more and more agitated and began losing interest in her marriage as well as her daughter. She felt as though she had lost her identity in the role of a wife and mother. On the 28th of January, Kathleen wrote in her diary, nearly purposely dropped nearly purposely dropped her on the floor. I feel like the worst mother on this earth. I'm scared she'll leave me now like Sarah did. I knew I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her and she left with a bit of help. Despite her obvious bond with Laura, Kathleen was struggling to handle the moaning that comes with having a baby. On the 1st of March, Kathleen was feeling extremely angry and agitated at both Laura and Craig. Craig left for work as usual, not anticipating what was to come. Later that day, a triple zero call was placed from Kathleen Folbig, who screamed, My baby's not breathing. I'm trying to do CPR and I'm not getting a beat or anything. When the paramedics arrived, Kathleen yelled, I've had three SIDS deaths already. I've had three go already. In her handwritten statement, Kathleen wrote, I put Laura to bed, heard a cough and didn't go in straight away. I was tending to the dog and cleaning. I went in 10 to 15 minutes later. She had pale lips, was blue, and cool to the touch, but not cold like one of the others. People were disturbed when, at Laura's funeral, Kathleen was heard saying, Thank the fuck that's over. A post-mortem examination found that Laura had an inflammation of the heart, which is known as myocarditis, which was not thought to be the direct cause of her death. Again, this death was attributed to SIDS. While Craig appeared absolutely heartbroken, Kathleen displayed little emotion. The couple ended up separating following the death of their fourth child. In between the deaths of Sarah and Laura, the New South Wales Child Death Review Team had formed in 1996. They opened an investigation into Laura's death 
and quickly formed the opinion that Laura's death was suspicious. The suspicion raised about Laura's death and the investigation revealing the three other deaths was extremely unusual and suspicious. The case was passed over to the coroner's office for review and Detective Sergeant Bernard Ryan was assigned to the case. Sergeant Ryan took Kathleen Folbig in for an interview in 1999 where she strongly denied playing any hand in the deaths of her four children. When Craig Folbig was interviewed, he was initially defensive of Kathleen. It is unknown whether he really didn't have any inkling she might be involved or whether he was just in denial. When Craig was cleaning out some of Kathleen's belongings from their house, he came across her diary. He was extremely disturbed by what he read inside and immediately handed the diary over to police. The case against Kathleen Folbig was going to be a difficult one to prove. Listening devices were installed in her home and her conversations with her sister-in-law were recorded. At one stage, she was heard on the listening devices rehearsing the answers she would give to police when they questioned her. On the 19th of April 2001, Kathleen Folbig was charged with four counts of murder and one count of malicious injury. Her application for bail was initially rejected, but she was eventually allowed out on bail on the condition she not try to contact or influence Craig Folbig in any way. Kathleen Folbig's trial began on the 12th of May 2003. Crown Prosecutor Mark Tedeschi QC stated to the jury that the fourth Sid's death in the same family was unprecedented in the history of medicine. An expert from the US, Dr Janice Ophoven, said that the chances of four children, less than two years old, dying for unexplained reasons in the same family was one in a trillion. And also I just wanted to mention, just going back to the previous statement regarding the four Sid's death in the same family being um, unprecedented in the history of medicine, we did actually find that there was a large American study done in 1987 and it included two families where four babies had died of SIDS um, and also M-related conditions. Um, And then later, a British and Norwegian study of SIDS um, also included a number of families where three babies had died. So it's not completely... It's very unusual, but not unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. And we also don't know the intricacies of those cases either, do we? No, it's just a study that I came across um, when I was looking at this case. It's actually um, on a petition um, that is in favour of Kathleen being released. So that's where I found that evidence. But it just was interesting to note that that may not be entirely true. When and having was... said that, they, they we don't know that they might be the same situation as Kathleen yeah. where, in fact, they were infanticides, but it just hasn't been proven. We don't know for exactly. sure. So we don't know, but it's just worth noting that there yeah. was a study done. There was actually two studies done where there were um, three to four babies in each of those studies okay. um, in the same family that died of SIDS. The jury heard about Kathleen's self-centred personality, her lack of grief her lack of attempt to resuscitate her children and how she always found the children not long after their deaths. The jury was asked not to be swayed by how difficult it was to imagine a mother hurting her child and make their judgments based on the facts. They heard how every time the stress of motherhood got too much for Kathleen, she fatally injured her child. A forensic psychiatrist who had interviewed Kathleen suggested that she had a narcissistic personality disorder. The biggest nail in the coffin at the trial of Kathleen Folbig was her own words, her diary. 
There was no sign of a grieving mother on those pages. The bulk of her ramblings centred around her wishes to go out and party, her weight and her need to be checked out by other men. It appeared with each subsequent child she was able to stick out motherhood for a little bit longer before she snapped. It was the diary that seemed to have the biggest impact on the members of the jury, and after deliberation, they found her guilty of manslaughter in Caleb's death and guilty of murder for the remaining deaths of Patrick, Laura and Sarah. When the verdict was read out, Kathleen Folby collapsed into a heap. While Tedeschi acknowledged that Kathleen had come from an extremely dysfunctional childhood, which had affected her bond with her kids, this shouldn't be a mitigating factor. While she clearly suffered a personality disorder, she wasn't psychotic and her sentence needed to reflect that. On the 24th of October 2003, Justice Barr stated, The victims of the attacks were all little children, dependent on the defendant for their nurture and survival. I think that when she decided to conceive with each successive child, the offender believed that she would be able to overcome the dangers she represented to that child by succeeding at last in forming an attachment to the child and, where necessary, relying on the support of others. The stresses on the offender of looking after a young child were greater than those which operate on a normal person because she was psychologically damaged and barely coping. Her condition, which I think she did not fully understand, left her unable to ask for any systemic help or remove the danger she recognised by walking away from her child. She falsely pretended that the unexpected discovery of an accident and falsely maintained her innocence. That, I think, was because she could not bring herself to admit her failure to anyone but herself. On occasion, she seemed cool, detached, self-interested and unaffected by the fate of her children... In truth, she suffered remorse, which she could not express. He continued, She was hugely affected by her traumatic childhood and was unable to form an emotional bond, had a severe and, un- a severe and uncharacterized or unclassified personality disorder. She is remorseful, but unlikely to acknowledge her offenses to anyone other than herself. If she does, she may well commit suicide. Such an end will always be a risk in any event. She will always be a danger and is given the responsi- she will always be a danger given the if given the responsibility of caring for a child. That must never happen. She is not a dangerous person generally. However, as her dangerousness to the children does not disentitle her to eventual release on parole conditions, which will enable the risks to be managed. And sorry, that was a huge mouthful. Justice Barr then sentenced Kathleen Folbig to 40 years in prison. On appeal, she was able to have this sentence reduced to 30 years. Kathleen is kept in an isolated wing of Silverwater Women's Maximum Security Prison now and is amongst some of Australia's most depraved female child killers. Reportedly, most of the women in the prison's normal population would love to get their hands on Kathleen Folbig. According to some of her peers in the protected wing, she acts as a mentor to other child killers in the Willett East Protection Wing. Kathleen is facing another sentence for reportedly bashing another offender in the wing who taunted her about her crimes. The earliest date that Kathleen will be released is in 2028. This is not the only case we are discussing in this episode. There is another case that is a more recent example of maternal infanticide or murder that we thought would be interesting to discuss alongside Kathleen's case and that is the recent murder of baby Shayana Saev, and I do apologise if I'm saying that wrong. 
and that was by her mother, Sophina Nikat. Infanticide, by definition, is the intentional killing of an infant, and infanticide is most commonly committed by the mother of a child. It is commonly accepted that there are five main types of maternal infanticide. There's altruistic infanticide, which is when a mother kills her child out of what she believes is love, meaning she thinks the death is in the best interest of the child. And an example of this would be when a mother who is committing suicide doesn't want her child to be left without a mother. So now we may know that this actually isn't altruistic, but you have to remember that any mother who goes through this is not in her right state of mind. There is acutely psychotic infanticide, which is when a mother in a psychotic episode kills her child without any com- any comprehensible motive. A good example of this is Andrea Yates, who was extremely mentally unwell when she killed her five children. She believed that she was killing them before they could make mistakes in the eyes of God. And this would also have some crossover with altruistic infanticide because in Andrea's mind at the time, she actually believed that she was behaving in the best interests of her children. The next type is fatal maltreatment infanticide, which is when death is not the intended outcome for the child, but the child dies as a result of neglect. So an example of this would be a case we had in Melbourne in 2012, A five-year-old boy was living with his family in squalor conditions and he cut his foot on some rubbish. He later died as a result of his untreated infection. So that's obviously a result of neglect. We then have unwanted child infanticide, which is probably where Kathleen's case would most likely fit. And that's where the mother considers the child a hindrance to the life she wants to live and killing the child is the only way she sees out. So this would probably also be maybe Casey Anthony would be a good example of that as well. And then the final type is spousal revenge, which is actually a very rare thing for a mother to do, but is more common in fathers who commit infanticide. So examples of that would be Darcy Freeman, who um, threw his daughter off the side of the Westgate Bridge, or Robert Farkhausen, who drove his three children into a dam, and um, that was revenge reasons. Mothers who commit infanticide generally do have some form of mental illness, whether it be postnatal depression or psychosis or even suicidal ideation. When it comes to risk factors of parents who are most likely to commit infanticide, it comes down to a lethal combination of social and individual factors. This could include cultural isolation, social stresses, mental illness, drug abuse, or the difficulty of having a vulnerable child. Legally, the consequences of being charged with infanticide over homicide are different. Infanticide draws a lesser sentence because it takes into account the uniquely stressful circumstances that accompany motherhood. And that brings us to the next case we are discussing in this episode. On the 10th of April 2016, news went out that the police were searching for a toddler who went missing from a park in Melbourne's northern suburbs. So if you lived in Melbourne, you would definitely know about this. I remember it vividly. Young mother, Sophina Nickat, told police that a Sudanese man had pushed her in Heidelberg West before stealing her 15-month-old and running away. Sophina said she tried to chase the man but soon gave up and ran home hysterical and sobbing. Sanaya Shahib was 15 months old and the situation was urgent. 
Police needed to figure out exactly what had happened. Sophina Nakat was a single mother who had reportedly escaped a domestic abuse situation to raise baby Sanea. She and her family were of Fijian descent. Police were initially open to Sophina's story and warned the public to be mindful around the area, but there was far more going on behind the scenes. The case, talk, the case took a turn when some locals who were helping out with the search found Sanea. The beautiful 15-month-old girl was found floating in a small creek at approximately 2.45am. Police and social workers swooped in and removed Sophina from her uncle's home, reporting that they were concerned for her welfare and were taking her to an unknown location. Soon police revealed CCTV footage to the public and it was chilling. We saw Sophina walk to the park with baby Sanea in a pram. Not long, uh, not long after, she is spotted walking calmly back out of the park and the pram is empty. She isn't screaming and she doesn't look terrified or hysterical. The post-mortem examination that took place at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine revealed that the cause of the little girl's death was smothering. There was also reportedly some signs of prior abuse on the little girl's body. Curiously, the week before Sanea's death, paramedics had attended a property where she was staying with her mother to treat her for a seizure that was thought to be caused by a lack of oxygen. On the 13th of April 2016, Sophina Nikat was charged with the murder of her daughter after making a full confession to police. Sophina Nikat was excused from attending her committal hearing due to her apparent mental state. She was then assessed by doctors and a psychiatric nurse. A full investigation into the little girl's death was launched by the Department of Human Services to analyse whether strict protocols had been followed around Sanea before her death. Meanwhile, the community mourned the death of the beautiful little girl, leaving flowers, soft toys and notes for her along the fence at Olympic Park. Eventually, when Sophina Nikat was fit to stand before a judge, she pled not guilty to murder and was committed to stand trial. Her lawyers were arguing that this was a case of infanticide rather than homicide and cited her postnatal depression as the reason for killing her daughter. And just to emphasise, the actual definition of infanticide is different from the legal definition of infanticide. So any mother or father that kills their child is committing infanticide, but for it to actually be considered infanticide in the court, it does have to meet very strict guidelines. The court heard that Sophina Nikat had admitted to killing her daughter by covering up her airways and throwing her into the water. It was also heard that Sanea had injuries inside and around her mouth that were consistent with external compression of her airways. Drowning also couldn't be excluded as a possible cause of death. As the injuries to Sanea's body were described to the jury, Sophina Nikat wiped tears from her eyes with a tissue. The jury heard about Nikat's postnatal depression and the strained relationship she had endured with Sanea's father, which was evident by the intervention order she had taken out against him in 2014. In a psychiatric report that was submitted to the courts, Dr Yvonne Skinner suggested that Sophina Nikat's actions were consistent more with infanticide than murder. Reportedly, Sophina had told police that her baby was possessed by the devil and was increasingly unable, and she was increasingly unable to cope with her. 
She told police that the baby would look at the roof and cry and growl. In her words, she felt like she had no other choice as things were getting worse. The outcome of two psychiatric reports was that the crime committed was more in line with infanticide than murder. Sophina Nikat pled guilty to infanticide when given the opportunity, and this suggests that the judge believed that Nikat didn't hold as much guilt in the killing as a mother that would be charged with homicide. One of the hardest things for people to comprehend in cases like Nikat's and Folbig's is the psychology behind the crimes. What in the world would prompt a mother to kill her own child? It goes against everything that most mothers feel day to day, protecting their children at all costs. Claire Ferguson, a forensic psychologist from the Queensland University of Technology states that infanticide killings come about most frequently as a result of postnatal psychosis, although most mothers with postnatal psychosis do not kill their babies. One of the most common causes of infanticide is a mother's belief that her baby is evil, possessed or something that it isn't. Sophina Nikat was sentenced with time served and released from jail to serve out a community corrections order, which is a flexible sentencing order that the offender serves in the community. She spent a total of 18 months in prison for the death of her baby. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Make sure you join us next week and until then, please stay safe.